When you go to a museum, what are your favorite things to see? Maybe you like examples of traditional clothing from all corners of the globe, hundreds of years old and beautifully preserved. Or maybe you love admiring sculpture, massive slabs of marble carved into delicate forms. Whatever you enjoy, museum goers often feel connections to the pieces they see and wonder about the person or people who made them. But how often do we wonder how these cultural icons got into the museum in the first place? Perhaps what we wonder even less is if what we see ought to be there at all. Many museums today have inherited collections that were acquired through looting, war, imperialism, and coercion. This has caused communities and occasionally entire countries to request that objects are returned. Does the Elgin Marbles controversy ring a bell at all? But what happens when museums are unwilling or unable to return objects to their descendant communities? This week on the podcast, we are going to notice repatriation and how new technologies can act as activist tools, enable institutions to more readily engage with their collections, and how they could play a role in the negotiation process. Black Panther. Black Panther is a movie narrated by David Attenborough. Mm -hmm. It has uh, large jungle cats. Go on. uh, Bursting through the forest and saving the planet from um, the dangers of people who burn down the rainforest. You got 100% so far. It's insane. (laughs) It's insane how good I am with the plot. Did you write the movie? Uh, Yeah, actually. So so then... I feel like you've seen it a hundred times in theater. The, The royalties I'm getting are nuts. (laughs) <laughs> so, anyways, basically, these people want to burn down the village, or they want to burn down the, the rainforest, and the Black Panthers come together, kind of like the Power Rangers, oh. except with Jungle. Yeah, that's and that's um, that is Black Panther, and David Attenborough does the whole thing. He's all over it, all over it. Yeah, I'm so glad that you went to see Black Panther. I feel like Keely and I saw the wrong movie. I think we did. Yeah. I think we went yeah. into the wrong theater. Yeah, you because guys, you guys saw Planet Earth or something. You didn't see what I saw. <laughs> Yeah, it was, there's definitely different stuff going on in our theater. <laughs> so in case you haven't seen it or you're living under a rock, or your name is Nick Bridges. Nick Bridges. <laughs> Most people by now, I think, in the universe. Uh, yeah, Multiple think, universes. Yeah, though. that's true. In the multiverse, have seen mm-hmm. Black Panther and enjoyed it, uh, by all accounts. <laughs> I, I heard it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty decent. <laughs> Anyways... So Marvel's mega blockbuster hit, Black Panther, was released earlier this year, and it has brought this issue of repatriation and restitution back into the pop culture conversation, or, I mean, just into the pop Mm. culture conversation. I don't know that pop culture was really all that concerned with that to begin with. Uh, So the movie features a scene right at the beginning that was the moment where I realized that this was going to be one of my favorite all-time movies. And so in the scene, we're in a fictional museum of Great Britain which is a stand-in for the British Museum, where Killmonger, real name, challenges a museum curator who tells him the pieces from his culture aren't for sale, saying, how do you think your ancestors got these? Do you think that they paid a fair price? Or did they take it like they took everything else? It was amazing. Yeah, and it's great because that scene has actually already inspired a few essays, which is interesting. And it's also drawn greater attention to current repatriation claims that are being denied or addressed currently by the British Museum. So in the movie, 
Um, before this exchange happens, Killmonger asks the museum worker, oh, where's this from? And she says, oh, it's from Benin. And then, then he corrects her. But there's actually repatriation disputes ongoing right now with the British Museum for cultural belongings from Benin. So I just thought that was like a really interesting little like wink at the audience. But before we continue, let's take a few <laughs> steps back from a movie that I've definitely seen. <laughs> What is repatriation? Repatriation is the process in which objects of cultural patrimony are returned to the communities or descendants that they came from. Fun fact, this isn't a new idea. Uh, it is suggested that the first example of the repatriation argument was made by Cicero in 70 BCE when he spoke against Gaius Verus's unlawful plunder of Greek temples, both public and private. These speeches are referred to as invarium, and were used in the extortion trial of Gaius Verus, who was the former governor of Sicily. So the return of significant cultural belongings can be a big step towards reconciliation for colonized peoples or nations who fell victim to invasion and attack by imperial forces in the past. The return of such objects from major museums can not only signify a reassertion of cultural agency, but also the start of a healing process. Through the process of repatriation, cultural groups and museums such as the Haida people from the west coast of Canada and the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford in England have developed strong and trusting relationships with one another. It's interesting because there are a lot of different initiatives and they are very culturally specific to the groups that the objects belong to that go on in museums where arguably it would be ideal if objects were given back um, to be handled to whichever specifications are required. But in situations where they can't be or the community decides, actually, no, can you hang on to this? They develop these really specific um, and really interesting projects in some cases. And that particular example with the Haida people on the West Coast is really neat. So what are some common arguments against repatriation? And this is important because it is a pretty controversial topic. It's not cut and dry. Yeah, I mean, not everybody agrees that these items should be given back. Um, some people like that they're in museums and there are a lot of arguments for that. Some of which are that museums care for cultural objects so everybody can enjoy them. And in some cases, people can enjoy them for free, which wouldn't be the case if they were given back to these communities. And another good one, depending on your point of view, is that societies are not cut and dry and people are constantly learning from one another and sharing their cultures, which leads to a lot of cultural gray areas that would come down to ownership. There are no absolutes in humanity, in human culture. So therefore, some people would argue that no absolute ownership could be granted to any particular group of people over any particular object. Another argument that I've heard is that museums are where historical objects ought to be stored and preserved as it helps educate museum goers about the cultures of people all over the world and throughout history. Now, as a counterpoint to those arguments, there are a lot of very strong arguments for repatriation. And when you were listening to the arguments against if you notice that they were all very focused around the, this museum as an idealistic place, that's not a mistake. Most of the arguments that are against repatriation hold museums in really high regard as this sort of ideal place where all people can go and all people can participate and everyone is welcome. And that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. I know it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it would be great if all museums were like that. But just in reality, things are rarely the way that we like them to be on paper. It's mm -hmm. just hard to execute them, right? There are people mm -hmm. involved in personalities and decisions and policies and all these things that have to get negotiated, and it is not a picnic or a walk in the park. So one of the main um, arguments for repatriation is that major museums such as the British Museum were built as repositories and showrooms for the spoils of war, 
and they removed objects from their culture or cultures of origin for the viewing pleasure of museum guests in the country that the major museum is in. So taking those objects away for the enjoyment or the curiosity of the people, um, part of the imperial nation. And maintaining collections that were acquired through looting and war and conquest, trickery and coercion is unethical, even if it was not deemed illegal by the standards of the day. So, you know, a lot of people see this as being a continuation of colonialism. Um, Another argument is that cultural belongings are very important signifiers of religion, identity and heritage. And the fate of such cultural belongings should be decided by the people they represent. So to bring it back to Black Panther, because, I mean, Black Panther, the object in question is actually, um, it's like an axe. It's a weapon. And it's being, you know, showcased and it's obviously um, mislabeled. They think that it's from a different country than being from Wakanda. So um, this this weapon that is being on display, it's a weapon. And that's the whole point is that it was taken and it was taken um, during these supposed um, wars that were happening in colonial times and that it wasn't taken in a proper, you know, in a kind way by the museum. Yeah, it wasn't and a given. Yeah. yeah. And that it's, it's now being stored and it's being put on display and the people whose culture it represents really have no say in it. And I mean, it, the fact that it's mislabeled really puts that forth even more because they especially aren't being represented because <laughs> it's incorrectly labeled. I was going to say, to be fair to the British Museum, who, what, from, you know, how this is going to go, it, we're going to be going after them a little bit mm. if we haven't already. And how often have they mislabeled things recently? Because in terms of thinking of a museum as an idealistic place, I think the British Museum actually does a really good job. It's free. Anyone can walk in. True. Um, But the British Museum as well, I had the opportunity to speak to one of the um, collections managers for actually the the African um, section, if you will, of the museum. And she was talking about their point of view on repatriation being that it did arrive through um, like sort of unjust ways or incredibly unjust ways. Um, But they're in a position now where, like Nick, you said that people can come and they can see them for free. And they're keeping these historical objects for everyone to see. And I I still find that problematic, but it was really nice to hear them addressing the fact that they're Mm -hmm. not like trying, they're no longer defending like we own these. They're trying to figure out where they are located in the issue. And that's interesting, I think. So maybe they're in more of a transitionary period. Mm. Yeah. Or at least they're part of the conversation, right? Like Mm -hmm. they're, they're taking part in the conversation. They're aware the conversation's happening. And I don't know, that sounds a lot more heartening to me than some of the alternatives. Yeah, and it's great. Like, I think it's interesting that you brought up a transitional process because this is a really interesting time for a lot of major museums, especially in Canada, um, where a lot of changes are being made, which, as you say, is like very heartening. So in cases where the importance of objects that um, to facilitate certain rights and processes um, in communities are outweighed by a perceived public right to access historical objects, Things are starting to change a little bit, and that's really good. But while we're talking about the British Museum right now, um, but this episode is going to take us all over the place with a lot of different examples. So maybe we should talk a little bit about what's going on a little bit closer to home in Canada. So most major Canadian institutions have relatively progressive repatriation policies and are actively working with communities to identify collection items that need to be returned, which is pretty awesome. Mm. One of the most important documents in Canada, at least, and for Canadian museums, is the 1992 Task Force Report on Museums and First Peoples. 
This report is often used as a guide when developing museum policy, not only for repatriations, but also community consultations. The report calls for not only sustained partnership and cooperations between museums, First Nations communities, and their collections, but it also states, museums and First Peoples communities should consider the replication of materials slated either for repatriations or retention by the museum for the use of the other party. Negotiations should be guided by moral and ethical considerations and the traditional knowledge and authority of the First Nation peoples involved. So this is a really important document. How well it's followed is up for debate. Tied into this, uh, Canada adopted the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, a.k.a. UNDRIP, in 2016. The UNDRIP states in Article 31, quote, Indigenous peoples have the right to maintain, control, protect, and develop their cultural heritage, traditional knowledge, and traditional cultural expressions, as well as the manifestations of their sciences, technologies, and visual and performing arts. They also have the right to maintain, control, protect, and develop their intellectual property over such cultural heritage, traditional knowledge, and traditional cultural expressions. End quote. Although the adoption of this declaration was met with a great deal of enthusiasm initially, many people have become jaded as the government has been quite slow to react and resistant to putting these um, ideas into practice. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action number 67 to 70 call upon the Museum Association of Canada and Library and Archives Canada to complete a national review of their policies um, to do with the partnerships of Aboriginal peoples to ensure that they comply with the UNDRIP. So pretty neat. People are making moves. Mm -hmm. And before the UNDRIP was actually signed, an example of repatriation that was successful in Canada, in May 2002 in Laxgalt's Gap, British Columbia, the Niska Treaty came into effect after negotiations between the Niska Nation, the government of BC, and the federal Canadian government. Part of this treaty agreement included the return of over 300 Niska cultural belongings from museums in Victoria and Ottawa, and they're all now being held in a new Niska museum that was designed to hold them. So it was part of a bigger treaty that involved like financial issues and other things as well, but that was also part of it, which is very cool. So... That brings us to the conversation of, is it worth repatriating artifacts if they become less accessible? See, that's so difficult because, I mean, is it really our artifact to make our... a decision about? Good point. Because it, and especially if they were acquired unethically, maybe our enjoyment or people's enjoyment going to see things and being around objects that are from different cultures is a less valuable thing than a culture being able to physically and tangibly reclaim their heritage, especially when they've had to struggle so much and for so long. Mm -hmm. So do we really get to say, hey, no fair, I want to look at it. Mm -hmm. And when people get more out of seeing those artifacts, mm -hmm. being in the place where they're actually from, mm -hmm. benefiting that community by thinking tourism-wise, spending right. money in that community. And who gets to make that ultimate decision? Like who, who gets to decide which of those things is the right thing mm -hmm. to do? What is the right thing to do? Right. And the just thing. The just yes. thing. The mm -hmm. correct thing. The thing that brings the most justice back to the people who were the most wronged. It's so fraught with problems. Mm -hmm. Everything. I mean, it's. I just am so stunned that we're even able to have this conversation at all right now. I think mm -hmm. it's amazing that this conversation is happening in these communities and with these museums, that they're willing to delve into this really tricky situation. 
so much is all packaged up into this and there's it's just a, a minefield, mm-hmm. right? And I could see them not wanting to deal with it. And for you know countless years, they didn't deal with it. But the fact that it's being dealt with is just really amazing. And even though it's difficult, it is such a worthwhile conversation for us to be having. Mm. And I think it's even more complicated because there's a tendency to kind of blanket statement like this community wants this done like as if every single person in that community would want the same thing Mm. so then it becomes an even more complicated issue because it's well who um if we're speaking in a canadian context maybe there's like um traditional leadership so they get to make that decision but what if people in the community or even if just some of the people in the community would prefer to have it cared for if it's an object that's coming back I mean um, having it cared for in a museum where their relatives who live out of province or who live far away can see it or even just people from other cultures so it's really tricky because you need to make these big absolute steps if you're giving something back or you're keeping something but you're never going to have universal approval from anybody on any side Sounds like they could really benefit from the use of 3D technology. Maybe they could. Maybe they could. Maybe we should talk about that. Most major museums globally are engaging in the use of 3D technologies. I told you it was coming back to this. Um, They're using them not only as participatory things within the gallery spaces, but as real augmentations to their collections that are currently shifting the way that people think about museums and their holdings. So a couple examples of this, Um, the Smithsonian is slowly imaging its collection and it is scanning them in 3D and it posts them online for free viewing. So we could go and look at Smithsonian XD, which is the name of the website in the program. And we could just kind of like peruse the collection and we see something we like. We can spin it around in space as if it's floating in front of us and you can see like every angle. Um, And they also encourage their visitors when they're in the gallery space to send in their own scans that they make on apps on their phone, like 123D Catch by Autodesk, which is one of the most popular scanning programs. And then they add this if they're good, or they'll use it to augment their collections um, of the objects that are on display, which is pretty interesting. So another museum to launch a major project towards 3D scanning is the British Museum. In 2015, they started encouraging visitors to participate in scanathons and upload their smartphone scans uh, to assist in the monumental task of digitizing their entire collection, which is it's just absurd how big it is. But so cool that they're able to get people to participate in this. Totally. It's the exact same thing, right? Awesome. So once these files are uploaded and sort of stitched together, uh, to use the technical term, um, they allow the... Pr- public unprecedented access to -to one-to-one representations of objects, which they can now examine and manipulate in cyberspace. Pretty cool. And uh, Canada is not going to be left out of this conversation. The Royal Ontario Museum used 3D scans of some of the famous Pompeii casts and displayed the scans alongside the casts themselves, the authentic ones, in their 2012 blockbuster exhibition, Pompeii in the Shadow of the Volcano. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, too, that like 3D printing is especially for something large or something that has a specific color is incredibly difficult. So it takes a lot of work on various platforms and Photoshop even just to get color gradients correct. And it depends on what kind of a machine you have. So when you get something like the ROM um, exhibition, I went to that one myself and I did have a hard time telling them apart. So that was very impressive. But oftentimes things that have been 3D printed, it's pretty obvious. Mm. So although there is a degree of, like, it is an amazing thing because the surface will be matched and things like that. But 
for it to look like an authentic thing is really difficult. We still got a ways to go with it. But I mean, it could be a really interesting way to solve this problem mm. of repatriation, right? Or like it can be definitely a tool or a resource that's used mm -hmm. in this conversation. Well, that's actually, there are some activist artists, um, Nora Albardi and Jan Nikolai Nels, who were German, who actually um, hacked, allegedly hacked, that hasn't been proven yet, but they allegedly um, hacked into um, the Neues Museum in Germany, their computer, their databases, and took their 3D scans of the bust of Nefertiti, which is one of the most well-known historical objects in the world. And they produced this really, really similar um, 3D print, and it was painted almost identically. And then they said, look, we have an exact copy. Give Egypt back the original one, and why don't you just display this because no one will tell, be able to tell the difference. And that caused a lot of problems for them. <laughs> it caused a lot of problems in the museum um, because they had originally they had said that they had scanned it themselves with um, a little camera that they made out of a Kinect mm. camera from like an Xbox. Um, but it was later discovered that that wouldn't be impossible because the quality of the scan that they had was so good. So it just kind of like kicked off this big conversation on an international stage. And if anyone's interested in getting their hands on those scans, they're still available on nefertitihack.alloversky.com. They've made it open source, but you do have to have the correct computer program to act, like to download the file. Uh -huh. But it's there. So they're trying. It's like this idea of like liberating the object. It's pretty neat how the agency of just individuals comes into play in this topic so much because it's like two people just decide to go and scan ahead and like make it themselves. So like, mm -hmm. screw it, we're going to do it. And then like even the individuals being associated with the museums are getting tied into the museums where they're like, hey, come scan our collections. Like that's really powerful. It's the democratization mm -hmm. of museums. It really is. Yeah. Kind of like in Black Panther when Killmonger, <laughs> of his own accord, just yeah. decides to liberate that Wakanda artifact yeah. and just takes it. And then he later uses it, um, you know, in not great ways against other humans. But, I mean, pretty interesting because, again, it's that individual deciding to be the change that he wants to see in the world. Right. It's, it's obviously not the, the right choice in that movie context. But it's a very interesting and bold move, and it really does represent this idea that the individual has more of a part to play in this conversation. But I think it's interesting, too, though, like this focus on the individual in a way is almost contradictory to the idea of repatriating an object to a community specifically so it can be held by them. So you get cases where... Um, you know, now people have unprecedented access, which in some ways is amazing, but it's this idea of capital E everybody. So, you know, some kid can like scan an object that's in a museum and maybe it's there through contentious means and they can print it any color they want. They can like make a necklace out of it. There's a bunch of artists that go and scan things in museums and they sell them to make money on like Etsy and things like that. But it's problematic in these cases because museums still have the, they're saying come into our place and image our things, like the idea of it being theirs instead of, you know, maybe this isn't true in all cases, but not going to the communities and saying, hey, um, this is on display. Is it contrary to the purpose of this object for it to be replicated and played with that way? Right. Or does it not matter? It might not matter, but I'm wondering how many of those conversations are taking place. Because it might matter. Because right? it might. Yeah. Maybe it's something that shouldn't be replicated or shouldn't even be on display in the first place. Right. Yeah. So almost the intense individuality of this process right now can lead to the breakdown of sort of nation to nation discussions. 
Well, it's certainly a quagmire. Yeah, it's a rema- <laughs> remains to be seen, I guess. I guess, yeah, yeah. it's all part of this conversation, yeah, we're which in... we're still ha- having, yeah. and I'm glad that we're still having it. It's fascinating. It really is, and yeah. it feels like it's just so much bigger than what we can cover right now, which is, is true. It is a huge conversation. So if this is a conversation that you're interested in learning more about, we would love for you to become part of that conversation. I mean, it's, it's an important conversation, and it's something that should be happening and should be continuing to happen. So we're definitely going to post lots of information on our website and also in the show notes. And by all means, uh, if this is interesting to you or if it's, you know, put a bug in your ear, definitely follow up and become part of it because it, it clearly matters a lot and it matters on a global stage. And it's only going to get better if more people get involved and if there's more awareness for it. So, yeah. So this was some of the history in practice that we noticed in museums this week. And also in Black Panther. I mean, Nick's favorite movie. My, I think it's one of my, my new top one. All right, so now it's time for Oot and a Boot, um, the segment on the show where we discuss history that we've noticed or other people have noticed Oot and a Boot. And this week we have a very special Oot and a Boot because it's a vacation edition. <laughs> it's Oot, Oot, Oot and a Boot. <laughs> Take it away, Robin! Where were you? What did you do? <laughs> so I just got back from a whirlwind trip to Myanmar with uh, a little bit of Vietnam tacked on at the end. So we got to go to all these amazing places while we were there. We really took full advantage of it. We went to Yangon, we went to Bagan, we went to Mandalay, and we ended off in Kala, which is a hill station. So Bagan is actually a home of a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's where they have over 2,000 pagodas from, you know, the 9th century to the 12th century and anywhere in between. They have older ones, they have some slightly newer ones, but there's just pagodas everywhere that were built as temples to Buddha, and they are breathtakingly beautiful. Kala was the other really cool historical place that we went to. It's this old hill station, but it's now this beautiful uh, little village up in the mountains. So we went up there for a weekend, and we stayed in what my husband told me was going to be a historical inn, and this was a colonial inn that has been preserved and is preserving colonial culture in photographs and in basically everything that it stands for. And I, as a white person, went and stayed in it. You're uncomfortable with your colonial experience. I was. I just felt like like I was... you were living in the 1920s. It was. Colonial Burma. Or it at least felt like I was helping to perpetuate it. And it's complicated because, I mean, that's how they make their tourism, right? Yeah. Like, they're making a living off of it. Um, this is It's owned by Burmese people. It's staffed by Burmese people. And many people are staying there. It's not just like it's a whites-only hotel or anything. But it was just because of the group that I was traveling with and because there were all these historical photographs posted everywhere around us that it just really reinforced for me that colonial experience. And it was really difficult to reconcile being on this amazing vacation, being in this beautiful place, staying in a gorgeous hotel with all of the reminders and the cues that were all around me constantly, right? But but clearly you were also engaging with that history. So do you think sites like this, like historic hotels that used to be Hill Forts, can be a vehicle for people to understand the colonial past of a place like Burma? I would hope so. I think that it could possibly be done in a more overt way that that is actually challenging that narrative or Mm. calling it 
forward a bit more and talking about the problematic nature of it, which I mean, you know, it's their choice and it's their business and they probably, I don't know, maybe they didn't want to, but it, it certainly wasn't present. So there were, a, there was a lot there that was making it feel like this rich cultural experience and this rich historical experience that you were taking part in, but not a lot of context was given. Mm. That said, mm. in their gift shop, they actually had this really cool aspect of their gift shop. More than half of it was this um, specialty purse. It's the company is called Yang Goods, which is a play on Yang On. And there are these purses that are made and they're actually prints on canvas of historical photographs of Burmese women. Cool. And they're beautiful. And they are of these like beautiful women, turn of the century. Um, they've added color to the photographs, but they're actual photographs huh. that they've colored in. And it's of them in, you know, traditional wear and in very historic settings. And the whole point of why this woman, it's a woman who owns the company, why she's made it is because she wants to make the history of Burmese women something that is well known and that is actually something that you can carry with you and make part of who you are. And she wanted it to be transported to the nation, so she made it, you know, a big tourist thing. That's... So a lot of Burmese women own them, but also a lot of tourists then choose to buy them and bring it home and it really spurs on that aspect of history. And I thought that was a really cool way of turning the like turning the tables on that. That's such a cool vehicle for people to learn and like learn and understand history of a place yeah or be spurred on to want to learn it right exactly yeah Yeah. i've never heard of like an engagement of public history like that like through clothing yeah that's amazing yeah and i think that's awesome too to think that an intervention into a colonial space is could be potentially more useful than maybe like it's erasure because then you're getting rid of the fact that that hill station was there and that those things happened there But if you have something like the gift shop, or maybe even if there was some sort of an interjection into that space, I think things like that are really interesting, like playing on what's already there, not pretending it didn't happen, but addressing it. Definitely. Yeah. So those are some things that Robin noticed, oot, 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 naboot, this week. If you've noticed anything, oot, naboot, or oot, 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 naboot yourself, um, let us know. Send us an email and you may be featured on our next podcast. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researcher was Keely McAvitt, with audio mixing by myself and Emily Cuggy. For more information about the topics we covered, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at podcast at nohistory.ca. If you like this show, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.